Welcome to Mission Hill. Apologize for the water stains all over. I'm a bit of a mess uh, this morning. Um, someone came up to me and said, I hear you're batching this morning. My wife is away at a conference. You, know, you ever say that to a wife when the husband's away for the weekend, do you? Oh, I hear you're widowed this weekend. It's like, finally, you're going to get something done. Anyways, uh, so I apologize. I'm a bit of a mess this morning. We're going to continue our series. Uh, someone asked, are, uh, are you going to do the sequel this morning? And I said, well, it's a trilogy, so it's not a sequel. It's a trilogy. So this is the two towers, friends. Only half of you got that, so some of you need to go out and pick up Lord of the Rings to get that joke. But um, this is the middle part of uh, our series. Uh, we're calling our series the, the Pulpit, the Table, and the Square. Uh, think of these as images that help represent uh, what a healthy church is supposed to be like, uh, who we have been created to be. Uh, it doesn't describe everything, but think of these, these images of pulpit, table, and square as the upward, inward, and outward uh, directional look of a church family. Uh, a healthy church family must look upward to see who its chief shepherd is, but it must also look inward to understand who, the, who they have been made to be in Jesus Christ as a family, but they must also, in order to be healthy, look outward because, I don't know if you've been to, uh, around an ingrown family with lots of inside jokes, apparently from your silence, you're all ingrown families. It was that awkward. But if you've ever been around people who have all inside jokes... Uh, it's not actually really welcoming, is it? It, it makes you want to create your own inside jokes with some other people. And sometimes churches do not do one of those three things. They don't look upward, so they're very family-oriented. They look outward, but they don't know who their shepherd is. Or they're very inward-looking, and therefore they don't know who they're worshiping, and they don't understand that others need to be part of this family or they don't have any directional uh, family. You don't feel like you're part of anything. You feel like you're, you're distant. You're just in an organization or a, a, a company of some sort. And so we believe that this is important for us to uh, take a careful look at as a church. And today we're going to do the two towers, which is the inward look. Uh, I'm going to read to you uh, the couple of texts that are important here. I'm not going to spend the same amount of time in each of them, but I first of all want to read uh, from the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians in chapter 4 actually has uh, an important thing to say about how the church is built up and what it's supposed to look like. And so Ephesians chapter 4, if you'll turn there in your app or in your Bible, to verses 11 to 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, I think you can read that as mature personhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, 
unto Christ. That's our head pastor. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And then I want to turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and we'll spend the bulk of our time in this particular passage. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1, I'm only going to read to verse 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortations, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Uh, let's, let's pray together if you bow with me. Jesus, I thank you for your word, for your instruction. Uh, this morning, Jesus, these are dense and thick topics for us to uh, speak about. So I'm asking Jesus primarily for clarity on your word, clarity for those who hear. May these not be my words, and may they not be words of my wisdom, but of your word and your wisdom. Help me to be foolish for your wisdom, Jesus. We ask for those of us who are needing to hear this this morning, which is all of us, that you would make it crystal clear what you are saying to us personally through this. For every single individual here this morning. I can ask this because you say it right there in the text. We're individually members of your family. And I'm asking on behalf of them for us and for your glory. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, as I said, oh, some, <laughs> if you're familiar with me, you're like, oh, great. Trev's got two texts he's got to get through this morning. Obviously, we're not going to get to so much of what's in the text. Really, all we can do is a little bit of a flyover, uh, even a flyover without a zoom. But I think there's some great help here for understanding the inward nature of the church. As we talked about last week, we often throw the word church around without really having a working definition of church. Um, I was having a conversation this morning. I was, I was looking for a building and realized I needed people. Uh, because the church is people. That's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about a building, an institution, organization. We're talking about a people. Uh, I'll refer you to last week's sermon if we're ever going to get online again with that. Um, 
But that's important to understand. The second part is we, we can't really figure out who we are inwardly as a family. We can't function as a family very well if we don't first understand that. And these two texts really help us. And this is how I want to divvy up our morning time. I want to, first of all, uh, simply talk about the, um, the process that we go through in the renewal process. So there's an individual transformation that must go on if we're going to be part of God's church. But secondly, I want to talk about the purpose of that renewal, that it is not exclusively for the individual, although it does happen to the individual. And lastly, I want to talk about the outcome uh, where this all lands. But before we even get into Romans, I, I do have to go back to Ephesians and say this. Uh, this is a very important passage for understanding the role of a church and the leaders and the people who are part of that church. If you see in the text, looking carefully, you will see that actually there is specific gifts given not to do the ministry, but to equip for the work of ministry. It's really important to understand. We're talking about shepherding this morning and what, what is a pastor, and the word pastor is an Englishization. That's not my word. One of the guys used that this morning. Uh, of the word shepherd. Pastor is just an English form of the word shepherd. But shepherds don't actually reproduce sheep. They just create an atmosphere that makes for good sheep reproduction. So there's a good metaphor right there in terms of if pastors and teachers are shepherds, their primary role is to equip all of us for the work of ministry, which we'll get into. Now, this is critically important because we have so many ideas of how a church should run. And if you don't think you have an idea, that is your idea. You haven't thought carefully enough about it. Some of us have a very CEO because, uh, type of understanding where we, we pay one person to do primary leadership and we expect certain results because we invest money in it. Or we have a different kind of a, of a, of a priestly understanding where it's like, I, I, just go to, I just go to church when I need something and I need some counsel. Or perhaps we are like less personal and we think of the church as a giant spiritual vending machine. We just plug in our resources and we pull the lever and if we don't get what we want, we move on to the next vending machine. But we all have something. I'm not saying that's yours. But I do know that is some people's because I've met those people. And I was that person. I thought that was my job, was to provide that. This is why we need Ephesians to correct us, to understand that there is a, there's something going on that's important for us to get. Now, it is not purely for the joy and enjoyment of the individual, although that is promised. You see in Ephesians that actually the point and the goal is spiritual maturity. So right away we can actually say the goal of Mission Hill Church is not to grow large in size. It might happen. The goal of Mission Hill Church is to mature, right? Uh, the goal of a family isn't to have as many kids as possible no matter how many make it, right? How many of you are like, I don't, I don't care how those kids do one day. I just kind of hope we have as many as possible. And, you know, that's, hey, seven out of ten isn't bad. That's a, that's a bad parent. 
You don't know how many kids you, you're not worried about them growing up and maturing? If you only cared about the birth of your kids, you would be a bad parent by all definitions of parenting. But sometimes as churches, that's all we think about is the births. Just get people on the, the idling bus that's going to heaven. That's all that we're worried about. But friends, I can tell you this honestly. We are committed as a pastoral staff, as elders, to your maturity. We will work hard for this. And this will mean that we're hoping, we're praying, we're expecting that you want that too. And that everything we do works toward this. That we're actually not paid to do your ministry. We're paid to equip you for your ministry. We have been given this portion, this opportunity to equip because there is going out there, I don't know if you realize it, but the cultural world, the Western culture is much like the text describes. It's like a giant sea. Anyone ever been in the ocean, right? Okay, if you take on the ocean, you fight the ocean, you versus the ocean, who wins? The ocean, right? You ever tried to like stand up to a wave I have, actually. Broke my nose. I did. Smash me to the bottom of the ocean. Because you don't win. You don't win. That's what it's like when we send you out into the culture without equipping you with the gospel. Because that ocean's going to smash you unless you're hanging on to something. And then you can stand. Then you can withstand that. Now, this is very important to understand everything that we do. And it also keeps us as pastors, as shepherds, and I'm talking both elders group and pastors, keeps us accountable. Right? Keeps us accountable. So there's, th this works both ways. Now, having said that, I want to talk about this process of renewal. And then this is where we go over to Romans chapter 12. Now, to get through chapter 12 in 20 minutes is ridiculous. It'll be a Christmas miracle, so hang in there with me. But what you see in this text, actually, in chapter 12, verse 1, is in the, in the letter to the Romans, Paul is writing to a church that he doesn't really know that well, and so he can write very generally. And it does seem, if you're reading through this letter, like he makes a brand new start to a brand new topic. But he's actually not doing that. What he's doing is he's applying all of the theological information he has been teaching up until that time. With a little kind of uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11 in regards to the connection to the Jew and the Gentile, which is a whole different deal. But it is important because that's his context. He needs to help them understand the church as connected together. And so really, 12 verse 1 through 8 is the beginning of an application of, more specifically, Romans 1 through 8. In other words, Romans 1 through 8 describes how someone becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. What we are like, what God is like, what he does in order to save us and provide us with salvation. It is the greatest exposition of what the gospel actually is. If you've never read the book of Romans, uh, first of all, get ready. You're going to need a hard hat. It's going to hit you pretty hard. But secondly, it is the best resource we have 
of a full description of how the gospel works in someone's life. So I would say, get your hard hat, put it on, and get ready to read Romans, because that then becomes the way we can apply something, the way we can apply everything that's been going on. And so you see right there, even in those first three verses, there's so much there. But Paul is basically beginning to explain, I'm going to appeal to you, I'm going to beg you, I'm going to beseech you. Uh, I don't know about you, we need to use the word beseech more, hey? Aaron, double dare you to use beseech next week. Anyways, I I appeal to you, right? I'm appealing, like, please, please. It's not a a condemnation. It's it's persuasive. I, I want you to understand how important this is, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices. I said before, there's a little exposition in Romans chapter 9, 10, 11 about the Jews and the Gentiles. And that's important because the the gospel is beginning to reach Gentiles who, by definition, are not Jewish. So you would expect that as God moves amongst people that he hasn't moved before, that all of this old imagery would be thrown in the garbage and he would start brand new, but he doesn't. He retains all of that imagery. He doesn't do away with it. He transforms it. He redefines it. This is why you say the church is the temple, but it's not the same kind of temple. It's a living temple. It's built with living stones. This is why he can say, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, Show of hands, do you know what a sacrifice is for the most part, right? Something you give up, right? Usually something innocent in your place. And what happens to that sacrifice if you understand it from the biblical perspective? It dies, doesn't it? You kill that sacrifice symbolically saying, that's what should have happened to me. And this goes upon an innocent person. Now, what is Paul doing? He's saying, the sacrificial system is actually still intact. I'm just redefining it. Does that make sense? You're living sacrifices because you're living people. Use your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, this is helpful for us. Because in the Greek time, the thought process is the body brings me down. Does that sound familiar? We hear in that these days. My body's not lining up with who I am, right? So we're not the only culture to deal with these kinds of issues. And the Greek culture in particular said, well, the body doesn't, it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. It's what's inside me. Paul says, that's not true. I want, it, I want your whole personhood to be a sacrifice. Let's, let's talk about what does that mean. Well, living sacrifice means it's Living. Ongoing. Um, But it doesn't mean that what we do on the outside is the only thing that matters. There's something that actually has to happen on the inside as well. And so this is why we can say it's a whole person transformation. That's why it's impossible to say, I'm a Christian and it changed nothing about me. It's not possible. It's not possible. Everything changes. Because now, not only is your heart following something different, so is your body. 
That means the way you act, what you say, is actually an act of worship. This is why I keep banging the drum of being careful about how we use the word worship. Not because singing isn't worship, but because singing is one form of worship, but everything we do now as a Christian is worship. Did you know that? That means when you go out and you give a dirty look to someone in the parking lot for cutting you off, you're still worshiping, but you've probably forgotten about it. You see how this begins to change everything. When you become a living sacrifice and it's no longer something you put on an altar and leave there, it doesn't have geographical restrictions. This should, in some ways, this should terrify us. This should say, boy, we need a lot of help then, don't we? Paul would say, exactly. You're with me. You're with me. This is why this radical heart transformation needs to happen because you can't do this without it. In fact, anything you do that has motivations other than following Jesus is an unholy, unacceptable sacrifice because that's the other thing about sacrifice. You don't just sacrifice anything you want any way you want. I mean, uh, let me refer you to, oh, let's say the story of the Old Testament. It's all over the place in the Old Testament, right in the very beginning with the story of Cain and Abel. It's all the way through, unacceptable sacrifices, people who, who thought it didn't matter how they worship God. It was real, like, he's going to see right through this, and he's like, that's the problem. He does see right through it, and he knows you're just lazy, and you think you can fool him. You're just selfish, and you think you can fool him by showing up to sacrifice. God's actually not fooled by any of this, but we sometimes are. So this is why this is a living sacrifice. Let me tell you some things about uh, living sacrifice, and this, what we have is... Uh, do not be transformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Conformed, not transformed. Right? Or, sorry, transformed, not conformed. We are conformed to the world by nature. I mean, that's the way our hearts want to go all the time. All the time. You're like, I'm, I'm better than that. Okay, I'm going to follow you on Deerfoot then every day this week. And I'll find out very quickly if everything in your life has been transformed. This convicted me, by the way, which is why you sometimes see me letting people in when they're the meanest drivers around because it's a reminder to me of this is actually how grace works. These are the kind of details that actually make a difference in my life. If I'm willing to do this when everyone doesn't like me, it, it, it might be an indication of where my heart's at. And I can tell where my heart's at when I want to do it and when I don't want to do it. So what, what I'm saying is there's a, there's a conforming that's just so natural to our lives, which is why we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, a couple things I want to say about that. First of all, it's continual. It's continual. So if you think... You will hear this morning everything you need to know about living the Christian life. Come back next week and I'll tell you why that's not true. You didn't get that joke, did you? You can't. Can you eat 
all of the food you need in your life in one meal. You can barely do it in one day. But some of us, this is what we do. We think we can be transformed by the renewing of attending a service for an hour and a half on Sunday. I'm telling you right now, you cannot be transformed by that. It's very similar to saying, I eat pretty healthy one meal a week. Yeah, you're smiling because you've probably tried that. That's the kind of stuff my four-year-old would say to me, right? Well, I ate healthy yesterday. No, 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 this is, this is a continual process. This is, this is a life. This is not a service. This is not a one-time thing. It's also incremental. Oh, we don't like that word, do we? I often joke about amongst pastors, that is a dirty word, incremental. We want words like exponential, multiply, times a billion. That's why our conferences are called wow, pow, sah, and, and not like ho-hum. Like, what kind of attendance do you think I'd get if we started a, a, a conference called incremental one at a time? Bit by bit. Slowburnministry.com. You're laughing because it would be hysterical. Do you know who would show up? People who actually understand. That's actually more realistic, isn't it? Paul does not say this happens overnight. He doesn't even say this happens over one year. He said this happens over your life, whatever time you have here on earth. Bit by bit, renewed day by day, incremental. I was talking this morning with someone. Don't forget, this builds and builds and builds and builds. I was drywalling at one point in my life, a.k.a. last year. And at one point, I asked a very good drywall mutter. I said, I looked at his roof, and it was, it was like glass. I was like, yeah, ceiling, yeah, sorry. Thank you. I'm a drywaller. Give me some credit here. And I said, oh, how long did it take you to do that? And he said, 40 years. Meaning, you can't get that, if I tell you the amount of time that it takes me to do that ceiling, thank you, you're missing that it took me 40 years to get to the point where I could do that ceiling in an hour and a half. Okay, but we think this way about our spiritual lives all the time. Oh, how come I don't know my Bible like the pastor who happens to be teaching this every single week? Because there's a lot of hours behind this sometime. It's not about intelligence most of the time. It's really about reps. It's about the amount of time that I've read some of these things. And I find only recently am I starting to go, hey, I know where I've heard that before in the Bible. And do you know why I can do that? Because of 25 years of reading my Bible regularly. That's why. It's not a bragging thing. It's to say, this is how we are made and designed for this continual, incremental change, day by day, because there is something at work in us, and I would call it the law of attrition. What attrition is? It's it's actually, I looked up the definition. It means to rub down, right, to grind away. 
And so there is a sense in which because of our nature and because of our enemy, our spiritual lives, if left alone, will grind down. They'll grind down. That's why if you're outside of Christian community, not reading your Bible, you better get that. (laughs) Ask who it is. You have this sense in which it goes backwards. It doesn't just stay neutral. It goes backwards. Now, it's really important for us to understand why, why would we commit to something like this over the long haul? Actually, it's exactly the same reason why you would invest your money over the long haul. I do know some financial investors, and every single one of them tells me the same thing. If you're in it for the short haul, don't waste your time. If you're in it for the long haul, there's always a gain. Always. The financial history in our country has said those who invested over a 25-year period have never lost money. All right? Never. Never lost money. That principle may very well be there just so that we can understand what this is like. That there is this continual, incremental movement of in, inward transformation, but I've got to move on. There's, there's more than just that purpose. Because as Paul moves on, then he says, I was given grace, and this is why no one can think of themselves too highly. And so I don't know if you, but I, I'm allergic to arrogant people, which is why I break out in hives all the time. Because I see so much pride in myself. That's the problem with that. But there is a sense in which it is impossible to be arrogant when you truly understand what you have been given. At least sanely. Right? It's like when I ask my girls for a bite of ice cream that I've just bought for them, Blizzard, and they're like, hey, no, it's mine. I'm like, oh, is that right, eh? But that's what we do with our gifts, with what we have been given. It's mine. mine. I earned my way here. Paul's saying, no, you didn't. You cannot brag about this because you did not earn it. You couldn't earn it. You won't earn it. In fact, you did the opposite. The gospel is, not only can we not earn our salvation, we ran from our salvation and God chased us. And he offered to us what we could never earn, freely. He did not want us to pay for it. There is none of this spiritual worship that should be done with the attitude, I'm going to pay God back for all he has done. First of all, you can't. Second of all, don't. It's not what God wants you to do. He wants our hearts merciful. Uh, to understand his mercy and his grace and his graciousness because he knows once our hearts actually understand how much we have been given, it will change everything in our lives. It will change everything. It will find itself in our work habits. It will find ourselves in the way we lead our staffs. It will find ourselves in the blue-collar jobs that we do and the financial work that we do. It will work its way into everything. That's what happens when you truly understand and are transformed incrementally, continually by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so therefore, Paul can talk about individual gifts that have been given to the church. It's like, none of us can brag about them. Which prevents this jockeying for position. I'm old enough to understand that I've seen pastors and I've seen people. I've seen whole churches that don't understand this and they don't get along with each other and they're arrogant and they fight with each other because they think whatever gift they have is more important than someone else's or that it's more important that they get to use their individual gift than it is to actually build up the body and make it more mature. I mean, sometimes some of our gifts just don't get used because they aren't needed right now. And that, for a season, that might be possible. My expertise in using chainsaws is of no value to my family right now until my wife needed a charcuterie board. And suddenly, it had tremendous value. And now she loves that I have three chainsaws. You see, this is, this is okay. This doesn't diminish my gift, and it doesn't elevate it. It says there's a time for this to be used because, honestly, if that wasn't the case, I'd be pretty selfish about my gift, and I'd use it for my own advantage all the time. And it would hurt my family because my family needs me around. So, so there is a sense in which this levels the playing field. And then Paul talks about the gifts and how they should be used. And I, I really have to skip over pretty much everything um, that I've prepared in this in terms of the individual gifts. Except to say that there is not an order there. This is not a complete list of gifts. And these gifts are actually in some ways snippets or examples of how a body functions. Some of them are leading. That prophecy there should probably read, in some ways, preaching, or at least public preaching. Um, the ministry there even is the ministry of the word, or the service is the service of the ministry of the word. But then you have teaching, you have exhortation, you have contribution. In other words, the generosity, this is towards people in need. And, and there's, no like, there's, there's no structure here. There's no hierarchy. There may be an order, but there's no hierarchy. Some of these gifts do come first in terms of the way they need to be built out. We do need to place some high priority on the teaching of the gospel in a church. That, that can't be last but the person doing it is not more important than the person coming in last. That's what this text is saying. And Paul says, do you know how you understand how not to misread this hierarchy? How not to be jealous of those who have gifts that you don't have? You know how many people I've talked to that actually deep down inside, they live most of their Christian lives jealous of other Christians' gifts? It happens all the time. And the only antidote is to understand everything we have is from Jesus, for Jesus. It should prevent you from being jealous or being arrogant. And all these gifts are, are helpful to what? 
to actually find diversity in the body and unity at the same time. And I would argue these are two things our Western culture is so hungry for. Diversity. Did you know that the individualistic mindset did not come from culture, but from church? Did you know that some of, despite all of the individualism that's going on in our culture, that primarily it was, it comes, it's rooted in people who read the Bible and said, every single person matters. Every single person has been gifted individually. Think about that. No matter what you think about yourself this morning, you have been gifted individually, uniquely, purposefully, at least at this point, to help mature this body of believers. Every single person. Unless, of course, you say, I'm not, I'm not really a follower of Jesus. Then I would say, those gifts come when you say yes to Jesus. That means there is no such thing as someone else doing all your ministry, which also has some strange implications. It means when you don't use your gift, if you can and it's needed, guess who's missing out? Both of us. It means I miss out. means we miss out. But also means you miss out. Because there's some, something so joyful about serving the way you know God has wired you. There's something that he put in us that said, I, I want you to understand you are not just a number to me. You're a person. You're a living stone. You're uniquely gifted. And yet there's a, there's a unity at the same time that says, this gift isn't for you. It's for us. It means if we're not using our gifts, we're preventing our church from being something that it's supposed to be. We're withholding something that doesn't belong to us. I mean, that, that, that's, that's the negative way, but the positive way, friends, is imagine what this church would look like if everyone said, I know what my gifts are, I know what my part to play in this church is, I know how I'm supposed to be part of maturing this body, and I don't really care if someone looks better than me or doesn't look better than me. It doesn't really matter. I'm just happy this church matured. Think about that kind of a church family. Does anyone want to be part of that church family? Yes. The, the thing is, you are part of that church family. It's only a question of whether we act like it or not. So this, this is, a, this is a, a way of trying to persuade you. If you don't know what your gifts are, let's find out. But here's what I would caution. Don't do it by yourself because the reverse is also true. We're not supposed to find these things out for ourselves. And sometimes you hear like, why don't you put out a spiritual gifts inventory, Trev or Aaron? Because most of them are designed for my evaluation of my gifts in my little bubble. And what does Paul say? Use sober judgment. Use other people's opinions. Right? I don't, I don't want to do that because then, then they might give me a realistic view of who I am. Ah, uh, yeah. Can you see why Jesus designed it this way? That there is a purpose that he says, be in community. It's really the only healthy way you can find out 
what part you're supposed to play. But if you aren't part of the unity of the body, then you will take your gift and think it's for you. It's the same way as if someone gives you a thousand dollars that says invest my money and you take all the profit. They would say, give me my money back. Give me the money you earned. That's not what a steward does. That's what a thief does. Right? We are stewards of the gifts. So I would say, how do you find your spiritual gifts? Well, you need to actively engage in your community to find this out healthy. So get to know some people. Shake hands with someone you've never met. Find a small group if that helps. Find a group of people. Do whatever it takes within your context, people who you know and trust and love who can help you understand what part you might need to play because sometimes you will overestimate your gifts, right? You've met those people, but there's a lot more people, I think, that underestimate their gifts. You ever come alongside someone you love and you say, you know, you should do that. And they say, no, 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 I'm no not, not good at that. No, that's, that's a waste of time. No, no, I've seen it in you. You're, you're good at this. You're wired this way. You should do that. You need community for both. So this is a call for to understand that purpose. And lastly, what's the outcome? The outcome is proper worship, friends. The outcome is worship. You want to you worship, please God, properly? I mean, I think some of you are at least here for that reason. We can only please God when, first of all, we have been completely clean and can offer our bodies and our hearts and our minds as acceptable sacrifices to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can't do that when we come under our own conditions. We can only do that when we come under his conditions. But once we come under his conditions, then the possibilities for us are actually endless. They are endless. I want to provide for you and leave you with a picture of what I think the church in some ways could really be. You know what a symphony is? Oh, okay, I'll say it again. You know what a symphony is? Yes, yes, okay. Um, you know what a concerto is? Less, okay, yeah, less. Uh, the thing is, I would say we often think of the church more like a concerto than a symphony. Here's what a symphony is. Both are played by orchestras, by the way. But an orchestra, and the word symphony comes from two Greek words, sound and together. An orchestra uses every single instrument and never places one instrument with priority over the others. And you say, weird. I've listened to an organ. I hear the violin sometimes. But you don't only hear the violins. You do hear the oboes if you're listening for it. You hear the tuba. You hear the timpani, which is probably what I play. Just bang, a, bang an object. You hear it all. A concerto, however, is a piece of music where a couple of instruments are in the foreground and all the other instruments are in the background. It's a good image for us. Friends, we have not been created to play a concerto. We have been created by the Savior, the creator of the universe, to play a symphony where every single instrument matters, even the little triangle that goes ding right at the end. 
everything, everything. Friends, I want to leave you with that and remind you, when you get discouraged of what part you play, remember, I'm in a symphony, so it doesn't matter what I play. It just matters that my Savior is glorified and that I properly worship him because I, everything I have has been given to me, even the instrument that I've been given to play. <laughs>